Good morning and welcome back to the Roast West Coast Coffee Podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Wolt. On this show, we interview the coffee professionals of the West Coast and try to increase our appreciation for our morning cup of coffee and by extension the farmers who grow the coffee plants, the roasters who prepare the beans, and the baristas who turn those beans into delicious drinks for us in a manner that can only be compared to alchemy. This week I'm joined by Jeff Taylor and Maritza Suarez-Taylor, the husband and wife team behind Bird Rock Coffee Roasters based in San Diego, California. They purchased Bird Rock Coffee from the original founder Chuck Patton five years ago under their PT's Coffee banner based out of Topeka, Kansas. Jeff is the Midwestern salesman and CEO of the two, and he's a natural, boisterous storyteller. Maritza, originally of Bogota, Colombia, is quieter, more selective with her words. She is the director of quality control for Bird Rock, and chatting with them, it seems clear that they work very well as a team. Their skills and banter complement each other. In a moment, we'll get into our conversation and delve into the growth of Bird Rock, how they work together as a family, and how quality coffee, above all else, is their guiding light as a company. But before we get to the show, I'm going to ask for your help. This is the third season of the Roast West Coast Coffee Podcast, and I'm still trying to grow the coffee community through this show. If you know a friend who loves coffee or is into entrepreneurship, or just likes listening to podcasts, please share the Roast West Coast Coffee Podcast with them. Send them to the newsletter at roastwestcoast.com, share the show on whichever social media you're using and you think is the least evil, then go have a mug of delicious coffee at your favorite local coffee roaster. You've earned it. While you're listening today, take a moment to follow both at Bird Rock Coffee Roasters and at Roast West Coast on Instagram. As always, you can find links in the show notes wherever you are listening. Before we get started, during the show, Jeff mentions Grain Pro bags as part of the coffee importing process, but we don't really describe what that is. Grain Pro is actually a brand name of airtight, hermetically sealed storage bags that can be used as liners in a coffee's burlap sack, helping to prevent changes in the coffee due to a host of variables, like exposure, moisture, oxidization, insect infestation, or mold. They're game changers for food quality and safety. We also reference the Cup of Excellence several times, which, as you may have guessed, is an international coffee competition, a very prestigious one that has been going on since 1999, and it includes an auction for highly rated coffees. The competition is rigorous, with thousands of coffees competing for a spot in the multi-stage cupping and tasting portion of the competition. In order to place in the top 10, a coffee will have been tasted and judged more than 120 times. That's all of the background info you'll need for today's interview. This morning, I'm drinking a cup of black coffee from my industry partner, Leap Coffee. And I have a can of cold brew from Zumbar Coffee and Tea just chilling in the fridge, because this is a long episode and I might get thirsty later. I hope you also have a full mug, because it's finally time for today's Roast West Coast Coffee Podcast and our interview with Jeff and Maritza of Bird Rock Coffee Roasters. So, uh, but if you wouldn't mind just saying for the Roast West Coast audience, uh, who you are and uh, what your role in coffee is. All right. Well, I'm Jeff Taylor. I've done every role in coffee. I started as a barista. I became a coffee roaster, um, obviously owning my own company, owning my own business. I started my first coffee shop in 1993. And so I was a barista and then I decided to get into roasting. So I spent some years learning to roast coffee. And then I realized I can't roast bad coffee and make it taste better. So I started sourcing coffee and traveled the world from 2000 to 2015. In 2010, I met my wife and we started traveling together. And I quickly realized she's better at tasting coffee than I am. And so she took over the tasting role and the quality control role. And I had to step up and decide what my next step was since I'd done all those steps uh, in the cafe business. So my next step became running the business. And so I'm now focused on growing the company. And as I like to say, I've kind of transitioned into the construction business because that's what I do now a lot of the time, spend my time opening cafes and she's taken over the quality control. And you, Maritza? My name is Maritza Suarez-Taylor. <laughs> I am the director of quality control for 
Verbrock and I help to do quality control also in PTs. Just direct them. And where did you, you grew up in Colombia, I believe. How did you get your start in coffee there? Uh, yes, I am Colombian. <laughs> my family is not in coffee. Uh, I think everybody thinks like my family owns a big farm and I just bring all the coffee from my family here. No, my family doesn't work in coffee. No. Uh, they don't have a coffee. I wish they did. <laughs> yeah, he invited yeah. me for my coffee farm. Yeah. <laughs> so my my family is not in coffee. Uh, my They don't have a coffee background. My grandparents were from Boyacá. That is not a zone that is known for coffee. There is coffee there, but really, really minimum. They were in a really high uh, altitude area, so they were planting potatoes and some, some uh, having some cows. They were like country country folks. <laughs> and uh, how I started in coffee, uh, I was doing my um, internship. I was looking for an internship when I was studying. My background is like, let me think about it, how to say in English. It's like a coffee science. Coffee sure. coffee science. It's food science. science. Food science. Food science. Food science, I'm sorry. Like a food science. So I was looking for an internship in that. And I started to see products I didn't want it to do in the normal products that I was looking for doing like in um, the wheat area in yes. Colombia, no, wheat, sorry, I, sometimes I need to catch myself in how I pronounce things and I don't say other things. <laughs> yeah, like in the, uh, in, in all the industries that were not well known in Colombia, so I, I look at coffee because it wasn't too much, uh, like at that time, yes, it was a, a big industry in Colombia and everybody was inspired by coffee, I was inspired really by coffee when I was growing up in the 90s, and there was a soap opera, a telenovela, uh, about, about this called uh, Women with uh, Coffee Aroma. So I was inspired by that story of that telenovela, uh, that all the neighborhood... It's a famous, famous soap opera in all over Latin America. Yeah, I think it's been translated to yeah. many, a, a lot of languages. So, so I was inspired by that, when I was growing up as a kid and everything around us in Colombia was so negative. So so that part of the TV helped us just to get inspired by those stories that they were telling about this this girl that was growing up picking picking up coffee from trees and she ended up being a, the, um, a CEO in a, com- in a coffee company. So I was really inspired by that. So I, I wanted to look at coffee and I apply for the Federation Coffee Growers in Colombia for an internship there, and I got it. And um, since I started to work with the um, uh, freeze-dry coffee, <laughs> that was my first task to work with that in that part, uh, like developing like the flavors, the um, drinks uh, based in that, in that product. And next, I was working with just the internal consumption uh, and a study on the tendency of the internal consumption in Colombia. So it was just a lot of analysis of the different brands in Colombia. So how they rose, the color, the, the uh, in Colombia, most of the coffee is ground. So the size particle of the ground coffee. And next, I ended up in a project that was uh, was the start of the specialty coffee in Colombia. I was just trying to determine in which region of Colombia what was the flavor profile and the varietal distinction in that in those areas. I, I worked for the Federation for uh, close to seven years and then next I was offered a position in um, uh, the Norman Coffee Group, the company, the Colombian company of the Norman Coffee Group. And I took it, and um, that is the way that led me to this guy here, <laughs> this handsome guy here. In a roundabout way, there's a, there's an interesting story there. In 2005, um, I was traveling, and I was judging the Cup of Excellence in Colombia. In uh, I think it was in Neiva, wasn't it? 
Yes. I think it was Nago is Nava. Yeah, in the Wheeler region, but we flew into Nava and we were judging the Cup of Excellence. And I found a, a coffee that I really liked in the Cup of Excellence, and so we bought it. I think it was the number four coffee. I can't remember. I think it was the number four coffee that I wanted to buy. And so we did. I bought it with somebody else. We bought it in the auction. And after we bought it in the auction, I called down to some people I knew at the Federation and said, listen, I really want to go to Colombia. I want to go to La Plata, which is where this coffee was grown, the area. I said, I want to go visit this coffee farm. And they said, oh, Jeff, that's not going to happen. That's a really, just not, they're not going to allow you to go there. And they said, I'll ask, but it's not going to happen. I said, okay. And sure enough, he called back, he emailed me back and said, no, they said no. They being the, the powers that be at the Federation. And so I waited a couple of weeks and I called my buddy back there at the Federation and said, dude, ask him again, because I really want to go visit this farm. I said, I just bought this coffee. We paid top dollar for it. I really want to get to visit the farm and hopefully be able to buy this coffee in future years. And so he went and asked him again and he emailed me back and he said, they said no. And so I waited two more weeks and I called him back and I said, dude, ask him again. I was like, I really, I don't see a reason why I can't go. And they emailed back and he said, I can't believe it. They said yes. So I got to go and I flew into Columbia. I went and visited this coffee farm. Uh, and apparently it was a big deal. I didn't know it. But apparently that was kind of a dangerous region, one of the most dangerous regions at the time. And I was the first, quote unquote, gringo to visit. Uh, we found out later. Um, and the way we know, the reason we know that is there was a newspaper reporter, local newspaper reporter that went with us on the trip when I went to visit the producer. Um, and they interviewed me and we had a translator there to translate and everything. And she got a lot of that reporter got a lot of facts wrong, but that's OK. They all do. But they did get my name and, and that sort of thing. And then. And it was, a, it was a good trip. It went off without a hitch, right? And the newspaper article came out, and I never really saw it. Um, I saw it later on, I think. Maritza, just coincidentally, at that time, had just started the job at the Neumann Group, and we didn't know each other. We didn't meet for five years later. I think five years later we met. But when she started this new job, her boss, Mario, pulled this clipping out of this newspaper and said, Maritza, you're doing specialty coffee. Take a look at this. Some gringo went down to Wheeland, thinks there's good coffee there. Maybe you should check there. And so she did what every good employee does. She took it. She looked at it. She stuck it in a file in her, in her desk. And that was it. Right? That's kind of the way that works. And then four years later or five years later, I can't remember exactly, we both happened to be judging a competition in Ecuador. I flew to Ecuador to judge another coffee competition in 2009. So it was four years later. And... Uh, Maritza was there on behalf of her company, Neumann Group. Again, we didn't know each other. We met in Ecuador. And she hadn't looked at that article in four years, so I'm sure she didn't remember it. <laughs> so, um, And we met in Ecuador, and, and uh, the story I like to say is she flirted with me for a week, and I finally gave in. It's okay. I'll have dinner with you. Sure. You know how that goes. My wife and I have a similar story in which she just, you know, she really flirted with me and I was just oblivious. And, exactly. I was oblivious to what was going on. So her story is a little different than that. But yeah. <laughs> anyway, so we judged. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so uh, after that competition, um, I made it clear that I really wanted to see her again. So I flew down to Columbia and we had our first date. And then this is after I got home, I flew back to Columbia and we had our first date. And then we started dating and five trips to Columbia a year for two years. And I asked her to marry me and she said yes. So then we went through the immigration process for a year. So now we're three years, now we're almost eight years removed for, no, five years removed from when we, I first took that trip to Columbia. She was cleaning out her desk to move to the United States. And that's when she pulled out that article and she said, oh my God, that's my husband. <laughs> and it was like, isn't that a kind of an ironic twist that, so we have that article framed now. That is really interesting. And that article was about you when you were as PT's Coffee Roasting, right? Correct. Which is the company that acquired Bird Rock from Chuck Patton, who a lot Correct. of San Diegans know, uh, the original founder. Correct. And it's been almost five years since you guys acquired Bird Rock, which Correct. it kind of feels like a lot longer to me, but I feel like time yeah. is weird now. And that was a that was a really big deal, I think, in coffee, in craft coffee in particular, uh, it kind of reflected a type of purchase that was more in line with craft beer at the time. What were your expectations at that time of like, we're going to acquire this and expand? And how has reality, I mean, we've gone through a ton of stuff in the last five years. What were your expectations then? And how have things actually panned out for you? 
for the, since the acquisition? Well, perception is, is always interesting to me because your perception of how we acquired Bird Rock is mine's a little bit different. Um, I've known, I had known Chuck since 2009. He and I had traveled together. That's how we knew each other, right? And going back to 2009, we were in Nicaragua and he and I were sitting out one night at this competition, drinking a beer. And we, one time we said, man, do we not have the best lives ever? We get to travel the world and buy coffee for a living and drink beer at night in Latin America. It's like, it doesn't get much better than this. And he said, yeah, you know, if I just didn't have to run a retail cafe, it'd be damn near perfect. And I said, well, dude, if you ever want to sell your business, call me. I'd love to live in San Diego. And that was, the, that was in 2009. And nothing was ever said of that again. Fast forward to 2015. PTs was at a point where the industry, uh, the industry was changing because, as you know, when the, when the economy crashed in 2008, 2009, there was a big shift in the industry. At the time, PTs had wholesale accounts in 35 states, and we were going gangbusters, right? Half of our, actually, about all of our wholesale accounts at that time, the bigger ones, started roasting their own coffee. That's when all the micro roasters started popping up was around 2009 to 2014, there was a big boom in micro roasting and everybody wanted to do what we were doing. And so we started, there's a wholesale company, PT started losing accounts left and right. And PT's was doing great. We had great coffee. Everything was going well, except we didn't really have a, too much of a retail presence because Topeka, Kansas, where we lived and worked was the only town of a hundred thousand people. It's hard to build a real, a good solid brand on a retail cafe in a town that size. Cause you don't have enough density of population. And so we determined that, okay, we got to make a change in our business plan. We got to get to a bigger city where we can open some retail cafes to stabilize our bottom line. So then we can do wholesale and it all just works together. And so we found some local business partners in, in Topeka, men we knew that had done well in life, and they bought half the company from us. And we agreed to take all of that money that they gave us and reinvest it into expanding PT's brand into another market. And I was actually looking in Washington, D.C., um, I, again, I had just come back from another trip to Ecuador and I literally within two days turned around and flew to Washington, D.C. for three days where I, I was touring 30 different locations and I was trying to pick three that we were going to open up immediately in D.C. And when I came home from that trip, I was sick as a dog. I found out later I had Giardia uh, from my trip to Ecuador, which was a lot of fun. But while I was homesick, laying on the couch, Chuck called and said, dude, my wife and I have had it. We, we are ready to sell. He's like, you're the only one I'm calling right now. Uh, if you're not interested, I'll call some other people, but you're the one I'd like to have an opportunity. And I'm like, uh, really? San Diego or Washington, D.C.? I think we're going to San Diego. And so I had just happened to have leveraged half my company, so I had the funds, and it, the timing was just perfect. So I didn't really buy Bird Rock with a big expansion quest in mind. I was just looking to grow our business outside of Topeka to where we could get a more solid base with a, a bigger population. The timing of things is so interesting and in how everything works. You know, Completely. Just like you walk into a coffee shop one day and you meet somebody and it changes your whole life, which has happened to me on a couple of occasions. Yep. Or, you, you know, you pick up the phone or you're in a different place. You've mentioned Ecuador a few times and I'm just curious where uh, where would you consider in Ecuador like kind of the coffee center? Where are these coffee competitions? I've been to Ecuador as well and my wife lived there for a long time. So nice. Yeah, I'm just curious. You want to talk about that? Um, so there was some competition similar to the Cup of Excellence that is called the Gold Cup, or La Taza Dorada. Taza Dorada. Um, so they started to do like their own competition, and they were looking for cuppers, and they just were like, I got to meet when Jeff and I were judges there. Yeah. I got to meet somebody from um, in a certification for UTC. It's like mm -hmm. a Puch cafe. Puch cafe. I was taking a training in that and I met somebody from Ecuador that was taking the training with me. And uh, at the end, he called me and he said, there is a there is a competition. It's like the third time that we are doing this competition in Ecuador. Would you like to go? And now that you are a couple, do you like to go? Uh, so I said, yes, I, for sure I would like to go and see coffee from Ecuador and see what, what Ecuador has. So they send invitation to rosters here in the U.S. and they choose Jeff yeah. and it's another roster in, mm -hmm. uh, here in the U.S. And they were like couples from Peru and one from Guatemala. 
and they really they they really like were uh, experimenting they, with, the, yeah. with this. Jude was the start of this. It wasn't a cup of excellence. They were doing yeah. their own, and they were trying to figure out how to do it. Yeah. So at that time, like uh, they they didn't have like a channel to sell the coffee to these to these uh, couples that they were going or these buyers from from the U.S. and from other countries that they were going. What right was now, that competition? That was, they do in different, they did the competition that time. The first one. It was in. Beach town. Uh, um, By the beach. I'm trying to remember what the city was. Um, <laughs> That's why I don't talk, because I couldn't remember either. So, it was in Guayaquil, it was. No. Manta. Manta. Manta, Manta is where the first competition, that's where we met, was in Manta. Yeah. That's where she flirted with me, you know. Yeah, yeah that was, that competition was there. Now they are doing it. I know they do it in in the border with Peru, but they are doing it in different areas. Yeah. It's not a name that you hear uh, brought up as often in coffee uh, as Peru and Colombia and other Latin American countries, but it is a, it's such a beautiful place. I can tell you why I went, because I went with a specific purpose in mind. Um, if you go back to that time in 2000, late 2008, early 2009, almost all the Nariño coffee in Colombia, almost all of it was locked up by Starbucks. Starbucks was buying almost all the coffee in the Nariño region at that time. And so I couldn't get access to any Nariño that I, that I liked. And I thought, well, you know, Ecuador has a border with Colombia. There's got to be some coffee on the other, other side of that country border that probably tastes just as good as some of the coffee that's in Nariño. It's just not as famous. And so I, I thought, I'm going to go to Ecuador and just explore that a little bit and see what I find. And ironically enough, I did find somebody who was planting some coffee on that border at the high elevation and was planting SL28. And so I was like, gold mine. I was like, I, this is ended up not to be so great because he wasn't a good coffee farmer. But that happens. But we did meet a lot of good people. Um, and we met. we ended up buying some coffee from uh, throwing a blank, it's been a few years. We ended up buying a high-grown coffee that was on the border with Colombia, but we haven't gone back. All of my pictures come from there. Remember the one? Um, La Rafaela. La Rafaela. That was a beautiful coffee. We just had trouble getting it out of Ecuador. Has been our problem. And then the other ones we're buying now. What are we buying now from Ecuador? Um, we're buying from La Papaya. Uh, there is there is a lot of importers doing doing a really good yeah. job there. Yeah. Carabella. Uh, cafe imports. Yeah. But La Papaya started they uh, starting their own their own like way to bring the coffee direct to connect. the US, direct connection. And uh, they are supporting all their neighbors. That those areas are really high ground. Yeah. But also also they they have challenges because for the altitude, not all the coffee is not like in other countries that the harvest the cane. Yeah, the harvest cane and it was in this month. No, they have like, yeah, right. <laughs> this month it was like 30% of the tree, the cherries that the tree has are red. So next month is just 10% and the next one is over 30. So, so they, they have their, their own unique uh, challenges for the altitude. I actually was, uh, when I was traveling out of Ecuador, I was alone. My wife is on a different flight. And uh, I had a backpack full of coffee, which I think raised some red flags in the airport. Yeah, sure did. A gentleman with a large gun uh, suggested I go into a back room with him. And I was like, no, no, I'm okay. I'm just kidding because I couldn't speak Spanish very well at the time. But I ended up getting a very thorough search uh, in the Ecuadorian airport because of my backpack full of coffee. Of course. Out. You probably know this already, but most of the best coffee is exported. So I was, people always tell me to bring back some coffee when I go to Costa Rica or somewhere. And I'm like, well, I'd be happy to, except the coffee I would bring back with me wouldn't be nearly as good as the coffee you can buy in my store because most of the best coffees out of these countries are exported. That is changing, however, so ever so slowly in origin. They're starting to keep some great coffees in open cafes, especially in Colombia, yeah. uh, but also in Ecuador. Part of the reason we stopped sourcing in Ecuador, we, don't, we source in Ecuador, but we don't do it ourselves. We don't travel as much in Ecuador. It's because it is a challenging company to a country to export from, um, especially if you're not buying full containers worth of coffee. And Ecuadorian coffee tends to be a touch more expensive. And so it was challenging for us to do a full container load. And so we decided it was probably worth our while to work with some of the importers and exporters that are working there that she mentioned, Caravella, Cafe Imports, et cetera, than it was for us to spend our time traveling 
when we weren't buying enough from there to justify the expense. So we don't actually travel too much in Ecuador anymore. It's a dollarized economy. So. Yeah. So it has been five years now since that acquisition of Bird Rock, and you have PT's Coffee Roasting, and Bird Rock's a subsidiary of, of PT's. Maybe we'll make sure I understand that right. Correct. It seems like you're just in a every time I I like check my news alerts, there's a new Bird Rock opening. It seems like or the announcement <laughs> of a new Bird Rock. Uh, what has this this last five years been like for you guys? Uh, can I take a nap now? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's been um, we've we've actually opened. Technically, we've opened three stores. That's all we've opened is three in five years. And we remodeled an additional one, the roasting plant. We expanded and remodeled. So that would technically be the fourth that we expanded. Um, so we're up to six stores now. And then during the pandemic, I took a little bit of a unique approach because I realized during the pandemic, there were a lot of challenges happening in the economy. And yet I was still getting calls from realtors who wanted to lease me property. And so I played hardball. And I literally, I told my business partners, my approach is I'll consider any deal as long as I can get a great opportunity. I'm going to be frugal and demand the best and the lowest rents I can get. And if I can get good opportunities, we're going to take them. And my partners agreed that we would approach it that way. And we did. We signed with, um, so far with two new cafes we're opening. Um, one's in Liberty Station that'll probably open supply chain I didn't take into account, but uh, that one will open up um, uh, probably the next two or three weeks. And then we're working on one that's uh, at the south edge of Liberty of uh, Little Italy, uh, north edge of downtown at Kettner and Ash, just west of the waterfront. We call it our waterfront cafe because it's a block west of the waterfront park. And that one we got a really good deal on. So we're looking forward to opening that cafe probably in mid to late December. It's kind of a one of the first times in recent memory that uh, tenants had a little bit of an advantage over realtors in San Diego. Exactly, and I recognize that. So I tried to I tried to be choosy and kind of get the best deal I could and location I could, and and uh, I, and there were also some advantages in that Starbucks had closed a couple stores, had closed a number of stores, and so I looked at a number of their former locations because typically they have pretty good locations, and the best and I found a couple of them. Um, and the good news about the good thing about those locations was all the plumbing and electrical was already in place. All I had to do remodel all was remodel them and make them look like bird rocks and put in better equipment and better bar and, you know, redesign it. So it's not a push button cafe, but rather a nice third wave friendly cafe. And I could, I saved about, you know, 150 to $200,000 on each of those cafes that will be opening. So. Uh, Maritza, I want to ask you about, uh, you're the director of quality control. And so I'm wondering if you could describe or explain how it is you decide a coffee is worthy of being a, a, BT, a Bird Rock or a PT's coffee coffee. You know, what are, what are the qualities of a coffee that make it a good coffee to you? Uh, okay, one is flavor. I think the main one is going to be flavor. A score plays a big role. How unique is the coffee? How unique is the flavor? Uh, I think all the coffees and all the countries has like their own base profile and from that you can find coffees that are below and coffees that are out of that we look really for unique flavors and um there, there is a boom right now right. with coffee it's a boom right now with coffee it is all this processing new processing techniques that farmers are doing but we value and love the varietal of the coffee i think varietals have a unique flavor and uh, if when it's in processing there is a lot of lactic and aerobic um, uh, carbonic maceration and that but we think they need to preserve the initial quality of the coffee the the, the what the varietal has to offer that coffees are really there is no like a a sheet that i can look and i say okay if it's Bourbon needs to taste like this, 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 yeah. and this. It's, it's depend of the like the microclimate where the coffee was was grown and that. And we've been buying from direct trade farms that we know exactly what they can produce achieve yeah. when they produce a, a a varietal. We've got direct trade farms we work with and partners, I should say, that we've worked with for 15 years. 
and we're still buying from them every year. So we have we have some really good direct trade relationships that we value. So yeah, I think to summarize is like a flavor profile mm -hmm. would be like the the answer. What we are looking for is a flavor profile. How unique and outstanding it is. If I may input just a little bit, because Maritza and I talk about this all the time, and she knows my personal flavor profile is not natural. I know there's a huge movement in the industry about natural coffees. I'm more, I'm, I'm still looking for the perfect coffee that is the varietal, it's the elevation, it's the terroir, it's the microclimate. I'm still looking for those coffees. We certainly have natural coffees, but to me, natural coffees are great equalizers. There are so many companies that can buy natural coffees and after a while they all start to taste very similar, yeah. um, even with the different processes. It's kind of like IPAs in California. After a while, you can find IPAs from every brewer out. They're all out there, right? And so naturals to me are a little bit of a great equalizer. And it, we look for truly exceptional coffees that not everybody else can buy, quite honestly, because most people are buying from an importer and they're buying a natural. Not I shouldn't say most everybody. A lot of people, that's what they look for. It's just a natural they can get from an importer. I'm looking for, or we are looking for, truly exceptional coffees that have that just literally amazing flavor that shines through the variety, the varietal of the coffee. Um, and the uniqueness of the tour in the microclimate. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. You you just mentioned other coffee roasters, and it kind of started this thought in my brain that I'm based in San Diego, Carlsbad area, San Diego area. Oh, okay. And we, you know, this is a, a West Coast-based show. Uh, Bird Rock Coffee, um, which has been around a long time, and even in the last five years, has kind of acted like a feeder program to create some of these people who've gone out and created their own roasteries, these other groups that are, you know, half the coffee shops that pop up, there's some connection somewhere where they work yeah. there or not. Even on this show, uh, my coffee expert, Chris O'Brien, who's a friend, he worked yeah. at the Bird Rock, uh, yep. in Bird Rock for like seven yep. years or something. I know, Chris, yeah. So how do you guys look at, at that as at, you're now competing with all these people who've gone through this this coffee education and this coffee process and are following in your footstep? Is that a, is it simultaneously a, a feeling of pride or is it also a you know, maybe we should keep something back here because these guys are all coming out out of the gates. Dude, I, I, we welcome all roasters, dude. We've had a lot of people leave here and go on and do their own companies and good for them. You know, it's not like I want to train people up so that they leave, but I want everybody to lead, to lead their own full life experience. And if part of that is going to be you opening your own roastery, well, good for you. Um, I've never looked at other coffee shops all the way back to my PT's days. I never look at other coffee companies as competition. We're all doing the same thing. We're trying to roast great coffee and sell great coffee. And there's a lot of coffee drinkers out there. So I don't look at any of us as competition. I've never had a single cafe that I felt like was diluted because somebody else opened up six blocks away. I still have the same customers and they're introducing new customers. And maybe some of their new customers might interact with, with us as well. So it expands the market when new people open up cafes and roasteries. It only expands the market. It doesn't take away from us. So... I really wish everybody well. I'm not, I don't worry about other, I spend zero time worrying about other coffee shops and other roasters and I, I wish them all well. They don't always think that of me, but that is the truth. You can ask my wife or ask anybody that works here. I wish them well. I don't, I don't spend any time worrying about what they're doing. We only do what we do. Yeah, yeah. We are happy to see, yeah. uh, to see them and we are happy to inspire them also. Yeah. Inspire them to, to continue learn more and uh, supporting somehow, some way, uh, the values that we've been teaching people here about working with coffee. And um, yeah, we, we like, yeah, I wish they continue working with us, but, <laughs> but but if they want to do their thing, I think for us is a sense of proud that they, yeah. they just being inspired by us. So, and, and I hope they feel the same. <laughs> <laughs> I, I heard uh, some very wonderful things about you both, actually, before the show when I was doing a little research on you. Oh, good. So, uh, I want to just touch back on quality control for a minute, Maritza, and ask how much how much has that position changed over the years? Uh, and do you use a lot of technical advancements, testing and that sort of thing? Or is it still more of an art and a feel, a tasting experience for you? I think it's both. Uh, I think the tech helps a lot to confirm what I was tasting or to confirm my theory 
that what is happening in roasting or or what is happening in, in the aging of the green coffee. I think it's both. I think one cannot be a part of the other one. Uh, you need to have your skills and coffee is a product that is changing all the time, including when we have the green coffee that as that, that arrived here and we are roasting it. To put an, an example, we have 10 bags of, of a lot. And I started to roast it uh, starting in like a month ago. By a month now, the coffee, the green coffee is changing. And also weather change, uh, environmental pressure change. So gas in the roaster is different. The way that, that air works in the environment is different. So all those things play and we need to be constantly evaluating yeah. for consistency in what we are doing and just try to go with the changes of the coffee and the changes of the environment. And all the tech just help us to confirm that that is happening. You know, I would add to that, coming from the Midwest where we came here from, Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> she even knows what I'm gonna say before I say it. We, here we have a very stable climate, right? Our, we all know, that's why we love it here. Our climate is very stable, right? We all know who live here that we have seasons. But when you come here for the first time, you're like, we don't have seasons. It's always 72. Well, you know, we know. But coming from the Midwest, where we truly had seasons, it would one day it would be, or not one day, but, you know, in the winter, it would be 24 degrees. And in our summer months, when Marisa arrived from Columbia in 2010, uh, the day I picked her up at the airport, uh, it was 110, 110 degrees yeah. the day I picked her up at the airport. She was like, oh, my God. <laughs> I think she was good. <laughs> I come from Bogota, yeah. here is between 50 and yeah, 15, 70, always. always. Yeah. Bogota is just slightly cooler than San Diego but and rainier. But in but, in, but so back to my, in Topeka, we have such an extreme climate, right? And our roasting plant there, we don't have air conditioning in our roasting plant. So in the summer months, we start roasting at 3 or 4 in the morning, and we're done by 11 a.m. because it starts getting hot after that. And it's just the the climate you're roasting in changes so much, you have to constantly be adapting your roast profiles to achieve similar flavor profiles. And so I think we spent, Maritza spent a lot of time and I spent a lot of time cupping coffees back then and working with our roaster, Mike, back there, who's brilliant, uh, to maintain profiles back there. And it's just, it made us better when we came here because it's easier here with yeah. the climate that we can control. We're even in an air-conditioned roasting facility here. I would argue that the weather changes drastically. This morning it was like 64 <laughs> degrees and I was freezing and I had a stocking cap on and uh, now it's only about 69 degrees and it's still cold. I just took off my second shirt because I was getting a little warm. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but I mean, you know what I'm saying? Compared to Topeka with the extremes, uh, we're fairly stable here, which is nice. You, you guys are a husband and wife, you're co-workers, you're also in positions of leadership. Yeah. How does that dynamic kind of... Uh, help you guys work together or create conflict? Do you think that it helps you present like leadership to your team? You know, how does that, how does that impact your family? Cause you're always together. You're either working together or you're at home together. But we always have been. Literally since the moment she moved in Columbia, when she first moved here, she didn't drive. No, I didn't. And so I didn't we, we drove to work together as well. So we literally in the first five years, I taught her to drive on an old Navy air, uh, air, Air Force Base uh, on the inner roads. And uh, one time she got pulled over by a cop over there because he wondered what we were doing. And I just sat in the pastor's side and laughed. And I was crying because I was thinking they would be for me. <laughs> that was so much fun. But yeah, so we've always been together. Even in the first five years when she first moved here, we drove to work together. We don't have the same office, although we did share an office, but she was always in the cupping lab and I'd be in the office. And then we'd drive home together. And so we've always been together. And I think it's just become part of who we are, you know? We, we rarely argue. There's occasional times when we all do. I think everybody does, but it's not really a thing with us. Yeah, it is not perfect, I will yeah. say. Like, it's not like we live in love and peace all right. 100% right. of the time. <laughs> a lot of our energy gets focused um, on our seven-year-old son, let me tell you. Yeah, I just make sure he gets his dose of caffeine. Yeah. With, that, <laughs> with that, he can hear me. <laughs> What I say without so, coffee, I came like what? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So I will say like we try to our song keep us on online. Mm -hmm. We cannot 
separate from the business. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, mm. it's, it's always there in the background. But we have a key um, for our sanity. We need to just to also just focus in, be parents. That helps a lot. <laughs> actually, right in this period of time, in the last six months, we actually found one thing where we actually kind of do it separately. I take our son to baseball practice and I coach his baseball team. She takes him to soccer and brings him home from soccer. So those are the two things that we have where she takes those. I take him on this side. We each have like an hour break. <laughs> well, I think it's important. I mean, that the balance, not just in a relationship, but with entrepreneurs and their partners is difficult. But when you're both entrepreneurs and you're both part of that, it, you know, there's another level of um, communication that has to happen. I think I'm more, I am much more entrepreneurial though than Maritza is. Maritza is much more quality focused and coffee focused and less and more averse to risk. Yeah, he just, <laughs> he just jumped without looking at, I just need to look. I have no fear. Unless I jump. Yeah. <laughs> she looks and measures and thinks about it and counts twice and yeah. then maybe takes and a digital toe in. I've already jumped in and swam back and forth, so. Like my plan considers the possibilities that happen if I jump here, the size with the 90% angle. And they say opposites <laughs> attract, and it's true. <laughs> I wanted to just quickly address, I know you guys have hosted Jay Rusky of Fringe Coffee up in Santa Barbara, uh, yep. down by you guys, and done some specialty coffee stuff with him. Um, he, I actually just spoke with him this week. He's gonna, he's a guest on the show as well. And I wanted... He's fantastic. Yeah, he's really interesting, and from a different perspective as a farmer. I'm wondering uh, just if you guys have any thoughts on the growth of domestic specialty coffee, which is obviously what Fringe is doing. Um, not asking you to pass judgment on it, but just curious if you think it's a, a functioning industry or you see growth in that area or just any general thoughts on the idea that we would start growing coffee more consistently in the United States. Uh, not including Hawaii, because obviously we already grow coffee in Hawaii. Yeah. Uh, I think we admire a lot what they are doing. Yeah, at, at least like ground coffee in California is not easy because it's not. You, yes, you have some conditions here that that can make things work, but there is also soil conditions related. At least in Hawaii, they have volcanic soil that has a lot of minerals, but the soil here is different. So. So the supply of water, also there are some like environmental conditions that you say like, well, what you consider in this? Yeah, I think <laughs> one of the things they're dealing with is the cycle of growth is so much slower yeah. here than it is in Latin America or even Hawaii. Yeah. Um, it's sometimes 18 months here to produce a crop. But that's Jay's specialty. I mean, he's, he's irrigating all their farms. Um, he's got the nutrients down to a science, which is great. So he's able to maintain a lot of those things. And if anybody can accomplish this, it's going to be Jay. Yeah. The challenge is really the price point because it is grown in the United States and because of the slow growing cycle, um, it's going to take a certain clientele willing to pay the price for those coffees. And we can just only buy so much of them. And of course, once you get up into those high price points, then you really do have to compare them with other high price point coffees in the world. And, and that's when you just make value judgments. Is this one worth this or is this one worth this? And I think his coffees are going to get there. I really do. I'm not I'm not one to judge that right now. We're not the ones to judge that right now. I think yeah. they're doing fine. And right now, I think they're selling a lot of the coffees themselves through their own website, which also makes it a little more challenging from our perspective because I don't want to compete against the grower in the same market. You know what I mean? Because it just doesn't work. So that's part of the reason we haven't necessarily invested in some of their crops right now because they're also selling them on their website direct to consumers. And that makes it a little less interesting for me to sell them because they're also selling them. Um, it's a, it's just such an interesting concept and that there's fringe and then there's also kind of a network of independents and they're all kind of doing their own thing. And I think a lot of, I interviewed a gentleman named Kyle Rosa, who's opening a cafe in Del Mar. And I think that was kind of their motivation is to see, well, I can, I can be both hands of this business relationship you know i can be the farmer and i can oh he's a grower he's a, he's a grower and he's opening a cafe and, opening a cafe. and so oh, okay. there's just this really interesting dynamic that that creates but it is it is a i don't want to say controversial topic but it is one that people have pretty strong opinions on as well and and that price point is yeah. tough you know i love coffee but i can't buy a 50 dollar bag of coffee regularly 
yeah. some economics of it that are a challenge. I think by the, in the future, there will be a lot of international buyers, companies, yes. buyers, that that will be interested in buying buy their coffee just because it's growing in, yep. in here in the U.S. and it's That's growing the in, in the place where they came to vacation in Disneyland. Yeah. The, the, market, the market for the California coffees at this point, and it's just my opinion, I'm perfectly open to being wrong, so I'm just giving you what I think right now, and I'm open to changing my mind two weeks from now too. So um, I think the market for their coffee at this point in time is really Asia. Um, the Asian market, they pay top dollar for coffee. They break it down into one ounce uh, segments and sell it to people for $45 for one ounce of coffee. And people pay that over there as and they give it as gifts. I mean, it's they have a huge market for high end specialty coffees in Asia that we only have a small fraction of in the United States. And also right now it's like the supply demand. There right. is not too much coffee growing, for the U, growing here in the U.S. And also... The, the um, is the uniqueness yeah. of the coffee that attracts markets like, we, like those. We had a great event with Jason Mraz, and we still thank him to this day for coming out and helping us support that. And and uh, Chris got a chance to come out and cup with that coffee, um, and we had a lot of fun. He showed up at Bird Rock the next day and did pour overs for three hours. Jason Mraz did. So that was part of the the high price of that coffee was. There was a lot behind it. It wasn't just a geisha. It was a, Jace, a geisha grown by Jason Mraz. And so there was a lot of elements going into that to making it valuable to do that coffee at the price we did it for. One uh, uh, one value add, I would say, to any sort of a program that they have been doing is bringing up the concept of how much does it cost to grow coffee and where is your money going? How much am I willing to pay for a cup of coffee? And I think that number is creeping up year by year. And, and the more Customers have been educated on the process of going from a farm to your roastery into your cup of coffee, the more that we're willing to pay. I mean, I regularly am buying or seeing cups of coffee for four, five, six, seven dollars even at local roasteries. And not it's not one of those things where you're like, oh, that's way too much anymore. You're going, oh, that seems fair or more fair, you know, on this side of the the chain. I had a, I had a discussion on Facebook recently with uh, I'll say an old timer in coffee. Uh, from years ago, and he was talking about a Papua New Guinea coffee that he bought at Trader Joe's for $8.99 for 12 ounces. And I just commented, I said, what's a shame is that that coffee was selling for $8.99. And he took offense to that because he said I was, in, in his mind, he said, there's nothing wrong with a value coffee. And my thought is, in my way, the way I see my role is I'm trying to prop the coffee industry, especially coffee market. So I want my coffees to be priced appropriately for the value they're worth. Does that make sense? Sure. And to me, you're only able to sell an $8.99 a pound or for 12 ounce coffee um, if you paid a very low price for that coffee. I mean, in the $1.90, $1.90 range or $2 range for green coffee, then you could probably sell that coffee for $8.99 for 12 ounces. If you're paying $3.50 to $5 for a pound of coffee, which is what we typically do, there's no way I can sell a coffee for $8.99. I would lose money. And quality coffee, in order to produce quality coffee, you have to be paying in the 3 to $5 range for it um, because it just takes so much more effort to produce a great coffee. And the value is there as long as we as, as retailers understand that's the value of a coffee, then we can pay farmers a better price for a quality product. And the sooner we can educate farmers that that's the value of their product, the sooner they'll stop selling it for that $1.99 mark or $1.80 mark or whatever. Um, and so that we can get the price up a little bit, pay farmers a fair wage, and we introduce customers to the price that coffee is a little bit more expensive now. And as customers are open to it, which they clearly are, Chris is doing well, we're doing well, we're doing fine, um, then it all works. But when somebody, it's just when you have a coffee that's at a low price, it drags everything down. Does that make sense? It puts downward pressure on the price. Sure. It creates expectations. And I think the more you engage, you know, coffee and beer is another one. You know, I used I used to never want to pay more than $2 or $3 for a beer. And now, now you, you walk in and you're like seven, eight, ten dollars $10. And it's, it's, that's the norm. That's the norm. And that's what it has to be with coffee. My perspective in coffee, and when I send it off to coffee review as well, is I'm not trying to get the cheapest coffee I can get with the best cup. I'm trying to get the best cup and a value price that also treats the farmer with respect and is a fair price. 
That's that's my ultimate goal, and that's always what I'm trying to do. I don't want to send copies for reviews that are based on price point and score. Um, I want them based on score and value. You know, that's to me is fair, but low value, low price point is not something we should be judging in quality. I don't think it does puts downward pressure that's not worthy. I have a whole list of other questions, but we're we're gonna have to split this, I think, into two shows at some <laughs> point. We have to get together again, uh, maybe in real life. Yeah instead of over the internet here. Um, but I want to give you guys a chance. Is there anything else that we didn't cover today that you'd really like people to know about what you guys are doing uh, with, with Bird Brock, with PT's Coffee, uh, with the business side of things? Oh, there's so many things. I've been in the business since 1993. My background, which we didn't talk too much, maybe you know, but um, I, I was one of the founders of the United States Barista Competition, which became the World Barista Competition. I was one of the founders of that, helped write the rules for it initially. But that was way back in the day. And then I walked away from that because, as I told you, I needed to start sourcing coffee at Origin. So I did the barista competition and judged the world. I would judge the finals of the world barista competition way back in the day before I moved on to sourcing coffee and then judged Cup of Excellence coffees. And then eventually was on the board of directors for the Specialty Coffee Association. And just we've, we've done, see, my wife and I, we've literally covered the gamut in the coffee industry and have been in it for 20, almost 28 years, 29 years now. So we've literally touched every element of the coffee industry in one way or another. Not that we've had great impact. I'm just saying we were, we've were we been involved. Does that make sense? Sure. We've been a part of the discussion, and we've always had focus on quality. And the other story I often tell, last thing I'll tell you, share with you, the other story I often tell when people ask why we do what we do, literally there was one point in my life that changed my life and changed what I do in this coffee business to this day. I don't know if you know, but I was a photojournalist by trade. And when I opened my first coffee shop, I wasn't planning on opening a coffee business. I wanted a good cup of coffee. I moved back to Topeka from the Northwest. And I was familiar with Starbucks before they went public. I was familiar with them. They had two stores at the time. And I literally never gave them a second thought. It wasn't like I obsessed about Starbucks. I didn't worry about them. I was a photographer. I was a photojournalist. I was covering sporting events. I covered World Series and Super Bowls, things like that. And when I got this job at the Topeka Capital Journal, I moved back to Topeka in 1990, 91, and there was no coffee at all. There was gas station coffee, and that was about it. And I was like, this is really strange. And I just couldn't accept it. And I was like, well, it can't be too hard to open a coffee shop. So I did. And I started, I, I'd like to tell everybody this because people, because I've been doing it so long, people think I just started with all this. And I really didn't. I started, uh, I borrowed $3,000. 1000 from my, my mom, 1000 from my partner's mom, and 1000 from a friend of mine, Jim Brent, who is still a good friend of mine, who happened to, at the time, lived in Seattle, but had moved from Topeka. And so I knew him. And when I emailed him and said, dude, I'm trying to come up with $1,000 so I can start a coffee business. He's like, how quickly can I get it to you? Because I know what you're doing. Nobody else in Topeka knew, right? And so I borrowed $3,000. With that $3,000, I went to the bank and I said, here's a piece of equipment I want to buy. I've got $3,000 used as collateral along with this piece of equipment. Will you loan me $6,000? And they did. And that's how I started my first business. Literally, we bought a Krupp's coffee maker at uh, one of the department stores. I don't remember which one, but that was our drip coffee in our very first cafe. I didn't start because somebody gave me a lot of money. I literally built this thing from nothing, from all borrowed money that I paid 20% interest on for one year. And from that, we had we had success and we kept learning more. But the turning point came about two years later after that we started that first cafe. Um, I was really feeling my oats and I was still working as a photojournalist, but I was feeling my oats because I had two cafes at that point in two years and we had a line out the door in both of them. And so I was thinking, man, I got the world by the tail. I'm, I must be doing something really well. And I was in Lawrence, Kansas, one evening getting a beer and I stumbled into this dude that I affectionately call him an old curmudgeon because he was probably 20 years older than me and, you know, kind of looked like me now and that sort of thing. And he told me that he had been in one of my cafes the night before. And I was like, oh yeah, what'd you think? Pretty good, huh? And he's like, well, you have nice cafes and there were a lot of people, but your coffee sucked. And my jaw hit the ground. I was like, wow, I opened these cafes because I wanted a cup of coffee and I forgot the coffee. I was focused on the cafe and doing poetry slams and all those cool things that coffee shops were doing in the early 90s. And at that point, I realized, wow, I got to get back and focus on coffee. 
And I said, that's never going to happen to me again. And, you know, there's always people that will say something like that. But I'm like, I can't let that, un- I can't unknowingly serve bad coffee. And so I don't know if that even sounds right. But you know what I'm saying? I couldn't. So I just I was determined I had to learn more is what it boiled down to. And I've spent the last 25 years focusing on quality coffee because the one thing I realized is if I have a trendy cafe, there's always going to be somebody that's more trendy. Right. There's we have those in San Diego already. I can't be the trendiest cafe and I don't want to be the trendiest cafe. I want to focus on quality coffee from point A to, to service and let everything else fall in place where it does. And I figure if we serve quality coffee, we'll always be in business. I may not be the wealthiest, we may not be the biggest, but we'll always be in business. And I have security if I focus on quality coffee and make that my life's passion. And that's basically what we've done. Yeah. So yeah, it stems from that one point in time with that old curmudgeon on the street who called me out and I'm like, I thank him for it to this day because it opened my eyes. So anyway. I feel like we, we keep believing in that. We, we focus in quality and we know quality cannot be separated. Uh, cannot be just in the coffee shops or in the roastery. So we go back to the farmer. Everything yeah. ties together. It All is a one. chain. So if we let the farmer, we just don't focus in the farmer. We don't give the feedback each time that we receive a sample of each time that we mm-hmm. get their coffee. So it cannot be separated. We give our feedback. We talk. We talk with them each year, and each time that they are having this problem with the weather, or they didn't found the uh, the fertilizer that they need, or they started to convert to organic. So it cannot be separated. It, it needs to be a chain yeah. that start with the farmer and finish with the barista. Quality coffee does not start at the espresso machine. It starts on the farm. Yeah. And that has to be continued into the importing process. I remember when Grain Pro bags, you know what Grain Pro is? Mm-hmm. Everybody yeah. does now. I remember when we first, when they first came out with those because it was such a alter, it was a life-changing event because it preserved the quality of green coffee, right? Um, and just for a long, at first it was only maybe five or six coffees a year we'd put in Berlin, in Grain Pro. Now everything has Grain Pro. It just it, we don't buy it unless we can put it in Grain Pro. In 2004, that wasn't the case. Grain Pro wasn't available commonly back then. So, it's uh, you're always you're always growing, even after 20 25 years, as you said. Um, you're doing that, always learning. I'll ask you. This is my last question, and it's a very I like to think of it as a simple one, but it never is. But if you were going to go and get get one coffee from just a random place you stopped on the side of the road, what is it that you're going to order? Think black coffee. <laughs> Yeah, with, with milk, you can make it taste it better, but black coffee, I think, would be like the way to go. I, I tend to do one of two things. I either take my own coffee with me, and I have a Commandante grinder, and I've got, you know, I've had grind, handheld grinders since 2002. I've had handheld grinders, and I've always carried them with me to origin. I used to carry a French press, and that's how I made us coffee when we first met. <laughs> That was a pea. Remember the peaberry pacamora? That's how I. That's how I. That was my opening lines. Like, yo, baby, I got a peaberry. You want to try some? (laughs) Can we say it was his peaberry too? Yeah, it was my peaberries that sold. I had a pacamora peaberry in in Ecuador. So I found some word. I only know with his peaberry. But anyway, the um, I so I either take coffee with me or I I tend to go around to cafes and meet people and find out where the best coffee is and that's where I'll go. Maritza will tell you, when we go to Bogota to see her family, I'll literally take an Uber and go across town to get a good <laughs> cup of coffee. And she sometimes just shakes her head. And I'm like, I'm sorry. <laughs> like, what am I supposed to do? I'll spend, you know, $8 in equivalent of $8 in Bogota to drive across town to a good cafe instead of drinking bad coffee. It's just not worth it to drink bad coffee. Well, I don't disagree with you there. I, I really appreciate that you both spent all this time with me this morning. Um, I know you got a lot going on. Just thanks for being on the show today, guys. It's our pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you for listening. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, absolutely. (laughs) Normally, after an interview, I would jump into a quick recap, but today is a little different. 
Early in the episode, I referenced the sale of Bird Rock to PT's Coffee and from Chuck to Jeff and Maritza as being discussed publicly as similar to the purchase of a craft brewery a few years ago. I think the assumption I made at that time, without even realizing it, was that some big money player came in with a buyout, kind of like Miller did with St. Archer here in San Diego. It's an assumption I think a lot of people made at the time, and considering all the purchases of craft breweries that were happening, those of us who are not insiders in the coffee industry can be forgiven for making it. But I could also tell it bothered Jeff a little bit, and after the show was over, he expounded on the purchase of Bird Rock Coffee from the original owners, and then gave me permission to share that with you. The only thing I would wrap up with is, if you don't mind, the one thing I think that is, um, I would like to communicate to the people of San Diego, mm -hmm. because all the most of the people here know about is I'm the guy that bought Bird Rock. And so they see me as just some guy that came in, in their minds, it's some guy that came in with a lot of money to buy a business. Dude, I've literally started from zero. I don't come from any money, none, you know, in my family. I don't need to talk about my family, but I've built everything and it's taken me 28 years. And so when I hear people talk like that, that I just came in and bought a business, the only reason Chuck chose me to buy is because he trusted me, is what it boils down to. And I've worked hard for 30 years to build a business. And I started from scratch and to be treated as if I'm just some rich guy that bought a business, it, it literally, it, it breaks my heart because it's just not true. You know, we're really hard to create this business. And I take, I take great pride in bird rock to this day. I don't want to ruin it for Chuck. You know, Chuck knows I feel that way. It is interesting what you mentioned early on. And it was something that I, I made a note to myself to address um, in the intro is how we perceive these, this type of thing, because I wasn't, really into the coffee community at the time i was actually running a restaurant in pacific beach a barbecue place uh, and i remember the news around that and i remember kind of the chatter from my friends who were in coffee and and just and hearing that and thinking oh it's kind of like when you know they were comparing it to saint archer and it's a really interesting i'm sure you look like you've heard that before yeah. and so it is a really interesting perception and as i was preparing for the show and i hope i didn't offend you with my question early on no uh, you know, reading more about that and reading about, I found an interview with you and Chuck in it both. That was really interesting where it was clear there was a relationship and identity oh, yeah. right there. We're still friends. And, um, and so it is, I think it is a great way to, you know, it, what we read in the news, I think we've all learned this in the last year are may not necessarily be a direct reflection of, of what the reality is. And yeah. especially when it comes to <laughs> businesses and entrepreneurship, how a deal gets done, sometimes it's right place, right time. Sometimes it's exactly. relationships. Sometimes it is, hey, we want to grow and, and these people are ready to go. And so there, there's always going to be a give and take in that. And yeah. it is interesting that how people perceived it. I would, uh, from the outside, it, it doesn't seem like Bird Rock has, uh, has not been successful in the past yeah. five years. Yeah. Things have continued to grow and do well. There's, there's nobody putting money into our business. We are all self-financed. It's bank loans and growth and using cash flow to grow up in another store. It's, we're literally still bootstrapping, but we're doing it the best way we can to be safe so that the whole thing doesn't fail at some point. We're not over leveraged, but we are being smart and frugal and trying to do the best we can to grow this business because I need to. I gave every last penny I had to Chuck. <laughs> I, I, always, I always tease Chuck that he got all my money that I had and I got all his stress. It's like something's not right about this deal. <laughs> well, my next call is going to be to Chuck and see if I can get a loan. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> okay, now to recap. Jeff and Maritza are coffee people, coffee lifers. Since acquiring Bird Rock Coffee Roasters, they've opened five new cafes, including their Liberty Station and Little Italy locations, which have actually opened since I spoke to them recently, making a total of seven in the Bird Rock family. I have no doubt that will not be the end of their growth. I also thought it was really interesting that Maritza was inspired to look towards coffee as a career after watching the Colombian telenovela Café con Aroma de Mujer, which says a lot about the impact of representation on television. In the original show, which began airing in 1994, a woman working as a coffee harvester works her way into ownership and eventually runs her own coffee farm. It is a telenovela, so there is also some romance and deceit and some more romance. The show was hugely popular and was recently rebooted. 
The entire first season of the new show is on YouTube, which I will be binging for the next few days, and I'm going to share some videos on RoastToWestCoast.com. Finally, and to repeat, Bird Rock Coffee's North Star is quality. Jeff and Maritza's theory is that if they provide a great cup of coffee, the business will continue to thrive. Answering the question of what makes for a high-quality cup of coffee is a little bit more difficult to answer. At Bird Rock, they judge each coffee based on its own merits, evaluating the flavor and taking into account each bean's unique characteristics. You can head to birdrockcoffee.com to learn more about their process, to order coffee for yourself, or to find the cafe closest to you. In North County, San Diego, Roast West Coast industry partner Camp Coffee Company exclusively serves Bird Rock coffees. And this has nothing to do with anything you just heard in this episode, but for our regular listeners, I want to keep you updated to something that came up in a previous episode. Netflix has still not reached out to me to begin negotiating a coffee travel show where Chris O'Brien from Coffee Cycle and I travel to all the great coffee regions of the world, tasting coffees and getting coffee smarter. We're waiting on you, Netflix. Give us a call. And while you're waiting for the next update and the next episode, Head to RoastWestCoast.com to find links to all of our other show partners like Marea Coffee, Leap Coffee, Zumbar Coffee and Tea, Moster Coffee, Cape Horn Coffee Importers, First Light Whiskey, and Steady State Roasting. And also thanks to Jeff and Maritza for making time for us today. If you want these shows sent right to your email, along with articles about coffee, photos and videos and vocabulary, make sure to sign up for the newsletter and or subscribe at RoastWestCoast.com. I specifically want to thank Kathy Rogers for signing up for the annual subscription last week. It was awesome to see that email come in. Kathy, I hope you are drinking an especially good cup of coffee today. This episode of the Roast West Coast Coffee Podcast is, was, has been written, produced, and recorded by me, Ryan Wolt. I hope this show has found you happy, healthy, and with at least enough sanity to make it through the day. And please, always tip your baristas and be sure to drink good coffee.